I don't know about you, but I thoroughly enjoyed our study of John that we finished not so many weeks ago, but I'll be honest with you, I think I'm almost equally enjoying our study of the book of Acts that we started not so many weeks ago. We are in chapter number three, and what we're going to be looking at this morning is Peter's second sermon. He's already preached once publicly uh, since the, the beginning of the book, and now this is his second Sermon. The thing I just want to bring out before we even get into this is that just remember, Peter was the one who denied Jesus those three times. <laughs> and, and, and obviously, there's been a great transformation that's come upon him because he apparently is the very most outspoken of all of the apostles at this point because he is about to preach his second public sermon. And remember, what precedes this was the healing of the man who was lame as he and John entered into the temple. Uh, And this is his sermon that takes place immediately after that. In other words, taking, you know, what people have witnessed in real and physical ways and bringing the truth of God out as a result of it. In other words, look upon this miracle and know that this is a miracle of God. While he clung to Peter, that's the lame, the the man who was lame. He's no longer lame, but now he's walking. And John and all the people, utterly uh, astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder, wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety have we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom he delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead." Through this we are witnesses, and by, uh, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see now. And the faith that is through Jesus has given uh, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses, the Lord God, will uh, said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, those who came after him, also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your father, saying in Abraham, uh, to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. May God bless that reading of his holy words. As we said already, I think uh, this is the second time Peter has preached publicly. We find a pattern when we look at the Gospels, and we're going to see somewhat of the same pattern here in the book of Acts. And that is, on very many occasions, preaching follows miraculous things. I mean, how many times do we see something like that happen through the Gospel according to John? Jesus did a miracle, and he used it as a platform to preach the gospel. And we see Peter doing the same thing. Solomon's portico uh, was not actually built by Solomon. It was built by Herod. Uh, it was a porch-like structure that ran along the south wall. I think it was the south wall of the temple complex. It was a place where the Gentiles uh, gathered. A place where Jesus taught on occasion. We found a, at least once or twice in uh, the Gospel of John him doing that. Uh, so Peter's uh, taking the same opportunity in the same place to do the same thing as Jesus had done. It will become a common meeting place for the early church where they would gather to worship One of the things I want to bring to our attention is this, and, and this is true for this sermon that Peter preaches as well as his first sermon, and that is that essentially he is preaching to the same crowd that gathered during the trial of Jesus before Pilate just weeks earlier. He is bold. doesn't seem as though there is any fear of man left in Peter at all. He starts by speaking these words, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him well? Talking about the lame man that is now walking. One of the things I want to point out here is this, is John nor Peter want to claim any credit for anything that Jesus does through them. They know that it's not by their own power, their own ability, or even any gift that God has given to them that they were able to heal this, this man, but it was by the very power of Jesus Christ at work in them and through them. They understand that they deserve absolutely no credit at all for what has taken place here. It's something they could not do and did not do on their own. 
It is the same Jesus that this same crowd had crucified weeks earlier that deserves the credit for this man's healing. Peter and John are simply Jesus' agents in this. And I want to challenge us with the idea this morning, with this idea this morning, and that is that ultimately when God does great and wonderful things in us and through us, we don't deserve any credit for it either. I mean, we all like to be appreciated, right? But we understand this, that when... Great and marvelous and miraculous things happen. It is not us that actually accomplish those things. It is God working in us and through us. Practically speaking, the very last thing that these people should have been involved in would have been killing Jesus. And yet they willingly did it. But we know that even that was part of God's plan. Jesus had to die at the hands of the Jewish people. For a lot of reasons. And one of those reasons is this, is that he had to die before he could be resurrected. It was absolutely necessary that Jesus die. For a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons, one of the premier reasons when it comes to you and I is that he would be resurrected from the dead. In order that we could be resurrected from the dead. In fact, we would be resurrected from the dead. They're still preaching to a crowd that uh, very many of them, I would imagine, are still questioning this idea that Jesus had been resurrected. Maybe they've heard about it or something along those lines. But most people believe at this point, I would imagine, that this is an absolute fallacy. Peter and the apostles, on the other hand, know as well as you know anything absolutely. Or I know anything absolutely. They know absolutely, no doubt about it, with no reservations at all, that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. They know it. There's a sense in which they are putting their lives on the line at this point because of that. They understand that their message is not going to be a popular one amongst a good number of people. They understand that preaching the gospel of Christ at this point in history could actually lead to their own death. And for most of the apostles, eventually it will. 
John is the exception. He died of old age. The apostles were not the only witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul will later write. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Peter or to Cephas, then the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. If you doubt the resurrection, it's almost if Paul is saying, if you doubt the resurrection, go find one of them and talk to them. They will tell you. Then he appeared to James, uh, that's his brother, and then all the apostles. Last of all, he also appeared to me. Just remember that the biblical standard for establishing truth is not a hundred witnesses, is not ten witnesses, is not two witnesses. All right, it is two witnesses. Just two witnesses. Is sufficient to establish the truth according to the biblical standard. Not 500. He doesn't hold back. You, you killed the author of life. You killed the one who actually gave you life. Now, I don't imagine that statement made Peter very popular, at least for a brief moment. But that's not all he said. He said, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That even though you contributed to the killing of Jesus, that is not the unforgivable sin. All sin is worthy of death, but that does not mean that all sin is equally heinous. Every sin is cosmic rebellion against God. Every sin challenges God's authority, whether it's intentional or unintentional. I know it is very easy for people like us, I'm just, just as guilty of it as anyone else, and that is we've, we fundamentally believe that we're really good, decent people. And let me just tell you, some of the people in this room are the most decent people I've ever met in my whole lifetime. <laughs> But just remember this, if Jesus came to save you and you only, he would have had to do everything that he did for everyone.
I would imagine that sometimes you get sick and tired of me telling you what a dirty, rotten, scoundrel, us sinner you are. But if you know me very well, you understand that I see myself as the chief among sinners. And I really believe that that's where we all need to be. And let me tell you, it's a battle to do that because there's this, there's this part of you that wants to deny that truth. There's that part of you that wants to say, I'm really not so bad. Look at so-and-so. How many times have you ever thought, I would not, I could not ever do something like that? I want to caution you about that. Because God might just let you see what you really are capable of doing. And I promise you, it will not be pretty. And remember this, we are reformed and we understand this, that Jesus didn't die for the sins of the, to cover the sins of every person that's ever lived and breathed. He's, he died to cover the sins of the elect. Why do we believe it? Because Scripture clearly teaches it. So there's a sense in which we need to remember this, and that is there's a sense in which we are the ones who bear the responsibility of the death of Christ, not the world. Because in essence, it was our sin that killed him. That is a sobering thing. When these people sinned in the killing of Jesus, they really did not know what they were doing. They were blinded by their own sins, so they did not see the author of life as truly being the author of life. Their sin blinded them. And those who saw it only saw it because Jesus enabled them through his Holy Spirit to see it and know it and hold it to be true. And just remember that Peter is a transformed person at this point. That up until recently, he was very much blinded by his own sin. And 
Now, there may be a few people in this room who have believed their whole lifetime. They can't remember a time before they actually believe. But, but I would imagine that there, there may not be any that fall in that category. And if there is, it's not many. That most of us have come to faith in Christ sometime later on. Let's be honest this morning. Sometimes unbelievers behaving like unbelievers frustrate the mess out of us. I mean, how many times have you ever thought, how could somebody do this, that, or the other? Why, why did they do that, what they did? We need to understand that unbelievers, when they do things like that, they're doing what comes natural to them. We very typically look upon those very people with judgmental eyes and attitudes. What ought to bother us most of all is me, myself, and I. when it comes to sin. And there's a sense in which it is worse for a believer to sin than it is an unbeliever because believers know better. And yet, as time goes on, God still allows all of us those moments, but he has reason in it. I think sometimes he allows us, he, he lets loose the reins a little bit, and we do some things that we might thought we were not even able to do anymore. I think sometimes he does that to remind us of where we came from. And what it's like to be there. So that maybe we have a little more ground to relate to where the unbelieving world is. In other words, to be more understanding of sinners who are not saved. Not condemning of sinners who are not saved. God sent these people a lifeboat, and they sank it. I mean, can you imagine doing something like that? <laughs> but in essence, that's what they did. Can 
Can you imagine being one of the people who was there screaming at the trial of Jesus, crucifying him, and now being confronted with the reality of what's going on here? We understand that, that through our sin, we contributed to the death of Christ. Every one of us, that's true. That we've done it, for the most part, more of a passive way than in an active way. But Peter knows something. He knows that he is, as he is speaking to them, it is not too late for them to be saved and forgiven of their very great sin. Something we need to think about here is he is preaching decidedly to a Jewish audience. I mean, there were other people in the temple complex probably. The vast majority of people there were of Jewish heritage. We've seen a real shifting in history, and that is in the first century A.D., the vast majority of believers were Jewish, of Jewish descent. Today, there are far more believers who are Gentiles. I'd say only a very small fraction of 21st century Christians are Jewish. Because we live in the time of the calling of the Gentiles. These people suffered from self-righteousness. I mean, self-righteousness is basically seeing the sins of other people very clearly and yet seemingly being blind to your own. There's a good bit of that that goes on within the boundaries of the visible church. Each of us should see ourselves as the chief of all sinners. Do we? I don't. Paul will write years later, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost.
as he grew in Christ, his own sin continued to haunt him. It became more and more apparent to him. Can we say the same thing? That we just continue to see the sins of other people very clearly and at the same time turn a blind eye to our own. Unfortunately, like the Jews in Jesus' day, the church comes across very often in the world today as a group of judgmental people. Heaven forbid it. Very often we think what the world needs from us is the truth, and we give the truth. But the world needs something else as well. It's just as vitally important. And that is the truth spoken in love. Not in judgment. Not in condemnation. but in the love of Christ. So what do you think? Is the word of God powerful? Is it life-changing? Does it stretch us? Sometimes does it seem to almost break us? And it always brings us Back to the very same spot. At the foot of the cross. Looking at our Savior. Savior.